Chapter Seven of the Feast of Saint Friend by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Gift of Oneself. Children divide their adult acquaintances into two categories: those who sympathise with them in the bizarre and trying adventure called life, and those who don't. The second category is much the larger of the two. Very many people belong to it who think that they belong to the first. They may deceive themselves, but they cannot deceive a child. Although you may easily practice upon the credulity of a child in matters of fact, you cannot cheat his moral and social judgment. He will add you up, and he will add anybody up, and he will estimate conduct upon principles of his own. And in a manner terribly impartial, parents have no sterner nor more discerning critics than their own children. And so you may be polite to a child and pretend to appreciate his point of view, but unless you really do put yourself to the trouble of understanding him, unless you throw yourself by the exercise of imagination into his world, you will not succeed in being his friend. To be his friend means an effort on your part. It means that you must divest yourself of your own mental habit and, for the time being, adopt his. And no nice phrases, no gifts of money, sweets, or toys can take the place of this effort and this sacrifice of self. With five minutes of genuine surrender to him. You can win more of his esteem and gratitude than five hundred pounds would buy. His notion of real good will is the imaginative sharing of his feelings, a convinced participation in his pains and pleasures. He is well aware that if you honestly do this, you will be on his side. Now, adults, of course, are tremendously clever and accomplished persons, and children are no match for them. But still, with all their talents and omniscience and power, adults seem to lack important pieces of knowledge which children possess. They seem to forget and to fail to profit by their infantile experience. Else, why should adults in general be so extraordinarily ignorant of the great truth that the secret of goodwill lies in the sympathetic exercise of the imagination? Since goodwill is the secret of human happiness, it follows that the secret of goodwill must be one of the most precious aids to sensible living. And yet, adults, though they once knew it, have gone and forgotten it. Children may well be excused for concluding that the ways of the adult, in their capricious irrationality, are past finding out. To increase your goodwill for a fellow creature, it is necessary to imagine that you are he, and nothing else is necessary. This feat is not easy, but it can be done. Some people have less of the divine faculty of imagination than others. But nobody is without it, and like all other faculties, it improves with use, just as it deteriorates with neglect. Imagination is a function of the brain. In order to cultivate goodwill for a person, you must think frequently about that person. 
you must inform yourself about all his activities. You must be able in your mind's eye to follow him hour by hour throughout the day, and you must ascertain if he sleeps well at night, because this is not a trifle. And you must reflect upon his existence with the same partiality as you reflect upon your own. Why not? That is to say, you must lay the fullest stress on his difficulties, disappointments, and unhappinesses, and you must minimise his good fortune. You must magnify his efforts after righteousness, and forget his failures. You must ever remember that, after all, he is not to blame for the faults of his character, which faults, in his case as in yours, are due partly to heredity and partly to environment. And beyond everything, you must always give him credit for good intentions. Do not you, though sometimes mistakenly, always act for the best? You know you do. And are you alone among mortals in rectitude? This mental exercise in relation to another person takes time, and it involves a fatiguing effort. I repeat that it is not easy nor is it invariably agreeable. You may indeed find it tedious, for example, to picture in vivid detail all the worries that have brought about your wife's exacerbation, negligent maid, dishonest tradesman, milk in a thunderstorm, hypercritical husband, dirt in the wrong place. But when you have faithfully done so, I absolutely defy you to speak to her in the same tone as you used to employ, and to cherish resentment against her as you used to do, and I absolutely defy you not to feel less discontented with yourself than in the past. It is impossible that the exercise of imagination about a person should not result in good will towards that person. The exercise may put a strain upon you, but its effect is a scientific certainty. It is the supreme social exercise, for it is the giving of oneself in the most intimate and complete sense. It is the suspension of one's individuality in favour of another. It establishes a new attitude of mind, which, though it may well lead to specific social acts, is more valuable than any specific act for it is ceaselessly translating itself into demeanour. The critic with that terrible English trait, an exaggerated sense of the ridiculous, will at this point probably remark to himself, smiling, I suppose the time will come when by dint of regular daily practice I shall have achieved perfect goodwill towards the first object of my attentions. I can then regard that person as done. I can put him on a shelf and turn to the next, and in the end all my relations, friends, and acquaintances will be done, and I can stare at them in a row on the shelf of my mind with pride and satisfaction. Except that no person will ever be quite done. Human nature still being human, in spite of the recent advances of civilization, I do not deprecate this manner of stating the case. The ambitious and resolute man with an exaggerated sense of the ridiculous would see nothing ridiculous in ticking off a number of different objects as they were successively achieved. 
if for example it was part of his scheme to learn various foreign languages he would know that he could only succeed by regular application of the brain by concentration of thought daily he would also know that he could never acquire any foreign language in absolute perfection still he would reach a certain stage in a language and then he would put it aside and turn to the next one on his programme and so on assuredly he would not be ashamed of employing method to reach his end now all that can be said of the acquirement of foreign languages can be said of the acquirement of good will in remedying the deficiencies of the heart and character as in remedying the deficiencies of mere knowledge the brain is the sole possible instrument and the best results will be obtained by using it regularly and scientifically according to an arranged method why therefore if a man be proud of method in improving his knowledge should he see something ridiculous in a deliberate plan for improving his heart the affair of his heart being immensely more important more urgent and more difficult the reader who has found even one good answer to the above question need read no more of this book for he will have confounded me and it End of chapter 7